If you have a Bible this morning, please turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Over the last two weeks, we have sought to target some key areas of the Christian life and think about them in ways that will help us not grow slack during the summer months. We've looked at our life with God. We've looked at our fight with sin. And this morning, we want to think about our desire and designs to share Christ with those who are lost. And so to do this, we want to look at 2 Corinthians 5, and we will actually go on into chapter 6, but I'm going to begin reading and invite you to follow along at verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those whose boast about outward appearance and not about what it is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled To God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. This is the word of God. Hear it this morning. Paul's relationship to the Corinthians is, frankly, a complicated one, and I'm already a full page over my sermon manuscript, uh, self-imposed limit, so we're not going to take the time to unpack that very tangled and complicated relationship. But one of the things I would encourage you to do is go online and find uh, in our Bible overview series the sermon that I did looking at all of 2 Corinthians, and if you just listen to the first five minutes there, I unpack that relationship to... Uh, between Paul and the Corinthians. Perhaps someone who has access to such things will post that uh, somewhere and it will be easily available. Uh, But for this morning, here's what you need to understand. Paul is writing in this letter from the uncomfortable position of having to defend his ministry. I say uncomfortable position because Paul hates the thought of trying to put together a resume. You even heard it there in the opening verses. He feels like he is out of his mind, like he is speaking as a crazy man trying to show himself to be a great apostle when he has all the while through his life as an apostle worked hard to do the opposite. 
Paul has strived to make himself nothing and put forward Christ that he might be seen as everything. And yet by defending himself here, he knows he will show those false apostles that have beguiled many of the Corinthians to be shown to be nothing more than posers, false teachers looking to get rich off of God's people. And so he descends into what he says is something like madness for him, offering some kind of defense so that they will see and understand why and how he proclaims the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of his defense as an apostle. Look at my life, look at my ministry, and see not just me, but the glory of God through me. Then you will know what it means for an apostle to be great. Now, all of this should be, as Christians, of supreme interest to us because as an apostle, Paul serves as our God-ordained guide and mentor as we seek to, again and again throughout our life, be recalibrated and reinvigorated towards our own efforts at evangelism. And so as we think about this passage as a help to us, especially over these coming summer months when we will have many opportunities to see people that we wouldn't normally see, perhaps to have more time to spend with people that we see all the time, we need to be thinking about how we approach, how we think about this task of making disciples by proclaiming the gospel to those that are lost. The first thing I want to think about is what motivates us for this mission. So this is the first thing I want to see, the motivation for our mission, the motivation for our mission. So we're thinking here about what gets us up in the morning when we think about the opportunity we might have to share Christ. What should cause us to walk across the room to talk to someone about Christ? What leads us to stop doing something that we love maybe even miss a TV show that we enjoy or change our daily schedule completely if it will give us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Paul says that for him, there were two important things that were motivations for this new covenant mission of sharing Christ. First, he says he is and we should be motivated towards evangelism because we comprehend the fear of Christ. We comprehend the fear of Christ. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. When Paul writes about the Lord, he means almost always the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, what is this fear? Well, context will tell us. If we look to the verse right before this, in verse 10, Paul says that all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He knows that one day he will have to give an account of himself and his ministry. Everything that he has is a gift from God. Therefore, all that he does should be done for others. That is how Paul lived. That is what motivated him. For me, especially, I don't know about you, but for me, I think is one of the most sobering thoughts when it comes to the return of Christ. Yes, there will be great joy in that moment when the struggles of this life will be done, but there is also a certain sobriety that comes over me when I consider that I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for everything in this life. Every fleeting thought and moment, every casual or intentional word, every purchase and donation for the finances that God has given to me, I will give an account for all of those things one day before my Savior. And the question is, how will I be found? Will my life bring Him glory or me glory? That sobering thought, that sobering question is not just for me, it is for everyone, lost or unlost. The results will be different, but everyone will still stand before that judgment seat of Christ and be judged for their life. And therefore, for Paul, it is a great motivator for him to go and to be living the way that God desires him to live, that he might be found faithful to the task that he has been called But it is not just the fear of the Lord Jesus Christ that motivates him. Notice also that we should be controlled by the love of Christ. That we should be controlled by the love of Christ. In verses 14 and 15, Paul says, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. 
that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We often sing a song called Highest Place, which is really just a few verses from Philippians 2 set for music. And Philippians 2 was all about the humility of Christ's sacrifice, laying aside his rightful privileges of his glory to take on flesh and die that sinners might live. And Paul says that love of Christ for sinners, even for Paul himself, who was a rebel against Christ's rule, a blasphemer of Christ's name, a persecutor of Christ's people. Nevertheless, the love of God for him is so glorious that it now controls him to live differently. Just as Christ died for sinners, so now Paul has died to himself that he might live for Christ. Such was the power of Christ's love that Paul now finds himself compelled, constrained, even controlled to live differently than he once did. Rather than simply satisfy his own desires and wants, rather than just put out his multi-phase, multi-decade life plan, he says, Christ, I must live for you. I must follow after you. I must do what you desire for me to do. And when he looks at the love that Christ had for sinners, even himself, then welling up within him is also a love for sinners. Knowing that if Christ loves them so much as to give their life and make provision of salvation, how much more should he, out of love, go and tell them about that provision, that Savior in Jesus? So notice how these things work together. Fear and love. We have a responsibility before God, but it is a joyful responsibility. We have an obligation, but it's an obvious, inescapable obligation given how much Christ has loved us. So what you need to remember is that in thinking about why we are motivated to share the gospel, we do not fall into the saving private Ryan trap. Now, some of you recognize that title of that movie. You've seen it. You know it well. Others of you have not seen it. If you haven't, it's essentially about a small group of soldiers sent deep into France after the invasion of Normandy in World War II to find one private first-class Ryan whose two brothers have already been killed. He is the only surviving son, and so the army wants to send him home. And not a few men give their life in battle as they seek to find him and tell him not only the news of his brother's death, but the reality that the army wants to send him home. And as an old man, Ryan, who survives the war, stands among the graves of those who died in Normandy, and he sees the graves of the captain, Captain Miller, who led that band of soldiers to find him and died in the process. And seeing his grave, he collapses in tears and grief, begging his wife to tell him whether or not he's lived a good life, whether or not he's been a good man. All throughout his life, he has remembered the final words of that captain who told him to earn the sacrifice that was made for him, that he must earn it. Loved ones, you are not Private First Class Ryan, and Jesus Christ is no Captain Miller. You will never be able to do anything to earn the sacrifice of Christ. I don't care how godly you are. I don't care how much you give up. I don't care to, to what extent you feel like you are giving yourself over into a life of ministry. Nothing you can do will earn you the merit sufficient to make up for the sacrifice of Christ. You will never be worthy of that sacrifice. But the New Testament says over and over and over again, we can live in light of it. We can live a life that does not earn that sacrifice, but nevertheless honors that sacrifice. We can allow the reality of the depth of Christ's love for us to so seep into our souls that we in turn love others and tell others about Him and the salvation that He provides. And specifically, we see here Paul telling us what that message is. And so we want to unpack that now this morning. Not just why we go out and share Christ, but what are we actually sharing? What, what are we actually telling people about Christ? Here we see, secondly, the message of our mission. The message of our mission. 
We cannot assume this message. If we assume it, we'll lose it. It will become warped. It will become distorted. We must continually talk about and think about and study the depths of this message of the gospel, lest it be distorted. Or worse, in our lifetime, we grow cold towards it rather than being encouraged and strengthened by it and excited to share it. So what is this gospel message? What is the good news that brings salvation that we are said to declare, to proclaim, to share? Well, in verse 17, Paul describes what God does in us, and he begins by telling us that in Christ we are recreated as new creatures. We are recreated. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Many times in the Bible, specifically the the New Testament, God promises at the end of the age, He will establish a new heaven and a new earth, an entirely new creation. Why will He do that? Because He wants to, as it were, make a new creation that will no longer suffer under the stain of sin, the effects of sin that this present creation suffers under. In Adam and the creation in which we live now, you had a creation made without sin, but with the possibility of sin entering. We know that because sin entered it, right? But what he promises is in this new creation, you will not only have a creation purged from sin and its effects, but one in which is only dwelt by his people, so filled with his spirit that there is no longer a possibility of sin entering into that world. All things being equal, I would love to step into that world right now, knowing the wickedness of my own heart. But Paul says, even now, even now that new creation has broken into the old. It is broken in and it is beginning to come about. And so every single believer, everyone who turns to faith in Christ, God by His Spirit begins to reshape them, refashion them into the new creation they will ultimately and finally and forever be. And therefore, brick by brick, He is building this new creation through the salvation of every believer. He is recreating us into the image of His Son, giving us new thoughts, new desires, a new way of understanding the world around you. Though you were once dead in sin, now you are alive to God in Christ. This is part of the message that we proclaim. A new life, not given by... by what we do, by how we change our, 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 our plans and everything else, but about what God does within us. And Christ's sinners are not only recreated, but we are also reconciled. We are also reconciled. Paul says in the next verse, <coughs> All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Earlier this week, Legionnaire Ministries posted a quote from R.C. Sproul's book, Saved from What? Here's what he says. The grand paradox or supreme irony of the Christian faith is that we are saved both by God and from God. Have you ever thought about that before? I hope you have because I've used that quote before in past sermons. So hopefully at least you've heard that and thought about it, okay? The idea is when someone says, are you saved? The whole point of the book is, is someone was asked, are you saved? They had no church background. And so their first response was, saved from what? What does that mean? And, and the answer is, in the ultimate sense, are you saved from God? Are you saved from his wrath against you because you are a sinner? We are his enemies. We are rebels against his ways. We are idolaters, loving false gods, foolishly drinking from busted wells when he is offering himself as the endless fount of living water. For all this and so much more, we deserve God's wrath. And so how are we to be saved from God's wrath? God himself saves us from his wrath through Christ Paul says that through Christ, God reconciles us to himself. We're no longer his enemies, but his friends. And Paul says very clearly, all this is from God. Everything involved in our salvation is from him and for him and to him and by him. 
Just in this passage alone, there are eight verbs that all have God as the subject. He is the one doing the action. God reconciles. God gives. God does not count sin. God entrusts his message. God is making his appeal through us. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. And so it is for this reason that the New English Bible, though often getting things wrong, well translates verse 8 by saying from first to last, this has been the work of God. God is the one who saves. And he does this through this process of reconciliation. This, this idea of reconciliation goes back a long way. This, this word, this concept goes all the way back to the Bible. But specifically in English, we perhaps might see the connection that is laid out for us here when we think about the fact that the Oxford English Dictionary tells us that as early as the year 1300... The phrase at one, two words, at one was used to describe people who were brought into a state of unity or harmony after a period of disagreement. Though formally estranged, they were now at one accord. And eventually that phrase at one began to be used as one word, A-T-O-N-E, at one, atone. And over time, it began to be used as a verb and give rise to other words like an atone maker one who makes peace between two groups. Thus, to make atonement was the action of making at one two people after discord or strife. And here Paul says exactly what God has done. He is the atone maker. He is the one who has brought reconciliation through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Again, verse 21, For our sin He made Him, that is God made Christ, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this does not mean that Christ physically, spiritually became sinful. The Bible is clear over and over again that Jesus never sinned. Even in death, Peter says that it was the precious blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot by which we were ransomed. So Christ was not only holy in his life on the way to the cross, but he remained holy even as he hung on the cross. Nevertheless, Paul says here he was what? He was counted as sinful in our place. To use a really big, important theological word, God imputed our sin to Christ. In other words, if, if our spiritual life was like a bank account that all of the debt of sin that we owed was credited to Christ's account. He had not run up the bills. He had not uh, used excessively his spiritual credit cards. He had done nothing wrong. Nevertheless, the negative balance was transferred to his account. And as a result, he took the hit. He took the fines. He took the penalty for us. That's what imputation means. God treated Christ on the cross as if he was the vilest of sinners. Specifically, specifically, not just sinners generically. To those who look to faith in Christ, he counted Christ as them. So, as one who has looked to Jesus and found life and forgiveness by trusting in him, when Christ was hanging on the cross, God looked on him and treated him as if he was John Bodkin, who deserved the torment and torture and fullness of his wrath forever in hell. Instead, poured out on Christ. He knew no sin, and yet he was treated as sin. He became as sin for us. That's how reconciliation took place, but that's only part of reconciliation. Notice that God wasn't done. There is a double imputation here. Not only does he impute our sin to Christ, but now when we trust in him, he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. For our sake, he made him to be no sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of the righteous life that Christ lived, that positive spiritual credit in the bank account, as it were, is now credited as ours. We didn't earn it. We didn't live the life. We didn't say no to the temptations. But when we trust in Jesus, the transfer takes place. We are considered punished at the cross, and more than that now, we are considered righteous in Christ. He does not infuse 
That is, he does not in that instant of belief make us to be holy. That's what he does across the whole lifetime. He empowers us to earn, as it were, a righteousness of our own. But the way in which he brings us into fellowship with himself, the, the basis upon which he looks at us and says, you are righteous and therefore worthy to be adopted as my son, is because he takes the righteousness of Jesus and counts it as our own. That's the message of salvation in God, a God who is righteously, justly, and furiously intolerant of our sin, and yet in love gives over his own son that we might be made right with him. And so when we trust in him, in Jesus, to be our savior, that we might be reconciled to God, then with the hymn writer we can sing, not the labors of my hands can can fulfill thy law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Paul's given us motivation for our mission of sharing Christ. He's told us the message that we should proclaim in our mission. But now finally, we need to see the methodology of our mission. The methodology of our mission. How do we actually go about evangelizing? Hopefully we feel now why we should. We know at least in part what we should say when we, when we, when we do. But what does it actually look like? In recent decades, Large evangelistic events have become the central means of doing evangelism and sharing Christ in this country. But I want you to consider two statistics. The first comes from Billy Graham, the Billy Graham Association, and they have found in the course of doing follow-up that only 6%, 6% of all those who come forward during an altar call to Billy Graham event, are still in a church a year after making their profession of faith, 6%. Now, to be fair, that's still 12 million people that have come to faith through Billy Graham's ministry. That, that, that's more than I will ever hope to see in my lifetime. But despite that, if 6% is the best that model produces, perhaps that should not be our primary model for evangelism. Think about this other statistic. Most people come to faith before the age of 21. That doesn't mean that we stop evangelizing people once they're past 21, but it means we have to work a lot harder at it. Most people come to faith before the age of 21, and when asked how they came to faith in Christ, only 1% said it was through a television broadcast or some other media. 43% said they came to faith through the personal witness of a friend or family member. It seems to me that those statistics bear out what the Bible seems to suggest over and over again by command and by example that individual believers talking about Jesus in the daily course of their natural conversations with intimate friends, constant co-workers, and random encounters with strangers is the better strategy for sharing Christ and seeing lost become saved, become idolaters, become disciples of Jesus Christ. Those conversations lead to longer conversations, hopefully to Bible studies. And as God begins to draw that person to himself, they are then introduced to other Christians who should lovingly welcome them and show them what it means to live the Christian life, even aiming themselves for gospel-soaked conversations and the hope and the prayer that that person might believe and be saved. Assuming that that's a good approach for us to follow, then how should we think about that approach? How should that be framed in our mind? Well, again, Paul gives us several practical directions here as we think about this methodology. First, we should speak to people graciously. We should speak to people graciously. Why? Why should we do this? Because God is gracious and we are his people. As simple as that. But notice specifically that we are called to be partners with God. Partners with God. At the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says, working together with Him. That is, working together with God. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We give evidence to God's work of grace in our lives when we also speak graciously to Him or of Him to others. In verse 2, Paul quotes from Isaiah 49, who envisioned a day of salvation that would come. And Paul says, today is that day. 
Today, God is at work bringing people who do not know him, who worship false gods, into a saving knowledge of him, into fellowship with him. He's reconciling people to himself. And when we speak graciously of God, when we speak of his grace of Christ and the reconciliation that he offers, then we become partners with him in that work of redemption. We are partners to him. Also, notice we are to be ambassadors for God as well. We are to be ambassadors for God as well. And Verse 20 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Those that have experienced reconciliation are now given the same ministry. That is the ministry of telling others that they also might be reconciled. And Paul describes that ministry as being like an ambassador, which means, frankly, very much the same kinds of things that it means today as we think about ambassadors. If we are ambassadors for Christ, then we are His spokesmen in the world. Just as He represented us before God, so now we represent Him before men and women and children in this world. As an ambassador, we do not speak on our own authority, but on His authority. We do not proclaim our own message, but His message. Don't let the significance of that be lost on you. Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. It is not simply going out and looking at the wind and the waves or the moon and the stars that people will, will, will see that Christ has come to reconcile them from their sins. No, they'll see that there is a God and that information, that knowledge will be enough to condemn them forever to hell because they have not been reconciled to Him. But God makes his appeal to sinners to come and to delight in him, to find salvation and forgiveness in him. How does he make that appeal? Through believers who have already been reconciled. The, the, the plan of God is that his very people will be his ambassadors. They will be his heralds proclaiming a message of peace. It is an amazing privilege, an awesome responsibility. What are we doing about it? Have we embraced that responsibility and that privilege? We do not simply speak graciously to people. We also, secondly, need to see people differently. We need to see people differently. In verse 16, Paul says, From now on, therefore, as a new creation in Christ, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Before we have come to have faith in Christ, we thought of Jesus differently. Maybe he was a good teacher. Maybe he was a misunderstood prophet. Maybe he was a non-existent figure of history. Someone we thought was a myth. But now that God has granted us faith through hearing the gospel, Paul says we have come to regard our Savior differently. We have come to see him in a new light. And he says, likewise, now that we are his people, we look at those around us differently. In other words, we don't look at people the way the world looks at people. We don't simply see them in terms of their ethnic heritage or their economic worth or their academic abilities. We do not see them in terms of what they can give us through the friendship or whether or not they're a threat to our job at work. No, we see them through the lens of Scripture. That means, first of all, we see them as human beings created in the image of God. There is inherent worth in every person alive. That has all kinds of moral and ethical implications for just numerous kinds of things of like euthanasia and abortion and poverty and human trafficking. When we see people, we don't just say, oh, well. No, those are image bearers. They deserve better. If nothing else, we should be praying about those issues and God's kingdom to come. But secondly... Secondly, they're not just humans created the image of God, they're also sinners in need of forgiveness through Christ. We look at people as eternal beings, as those that will reflect the glory of God forever or who will be like living coals under the wrath of God forever in hell. When we see people, we cannot simply say they get on my nerves, I don't like them, they would, they would, they would do bad things to me given the chance because they don't like my faith. No, we look at them and we say, there is someone in need of a Savior and something must be done about it. Especially for us, probably the biggest temptation I think along these lines is to only see people in terms of their sin. 
to see sinners and to reduce them to their failings, their foibles. So when we look at our, our neighbor, though they may be an adulterer, a liar, a murderer, a homosexual, or whatever, we don't just think of them in those terms. We can't do that. We can't just look at them and see their sin. We have to see someone who is made in the image of God and in need of a Savior. If we just look at them in terms of their sin, we won't love them. We won't cross the road. We won't care anything for them. But if we see them the way God sees them, we will not deal lightly or ignore their sin. Nevertheless, we will be compassionate and loving and driven to take the message of the gospel to them. We don't look on them with scorn. We don't reject them. We don't look down on them. Just the opposite. Like Christ, we love them despite their sin. We not only see people differently, speak to them graciously. Third, we also seek people passionately. We seek people passionately. Notice the language that Paul uses in verse 11. We persuade people. We persuade people. What does that mean? It means that we should speak in such a way that we, are, we, are, we want to convince people that the truth of the gospel is true. It doesn't mean that we manipulate and we twist our message to help people be happy about what we're saying, just the opposite. It means that we take the time to help someone see the truth of Christianity. I was just listening to someone talk today and what they said was this, the gospel is offensive, but nothing else about us should be. And, and, and that's how we put these two things together here. That's how we put these two things together. I love Max Stiles' definition of evangelism. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. That means being more than nice. That means doing more than just social justice kinds of things. It means you have to teach something. You have to say something. You have to instruct them about something, namely the gospel. So you can be like Dave Skidmore who spent weeks walking through the gospel of John with a Chinese friend over Skype. What is he doing? He is teaching the gospel, literally, with the aim to persuade. Or it might be much shorter than that. It might be like Tracy Brubaker who spent weeks, or excuse me, who, who launched into explaining the gospel when some Jehovah's Witness showed up at her door. Oh, this is who you are. Let me tell you about Jesus and launched into it. Or you may be like those who follow David Platt's advice, weaving threads of the gospel into everyday conversations with those around you, praying that God will begin to bring them together in the minds and the hearts of those that you're speaking to on a regular basis so that piece by piece you are weaving the gospel into their minds. And when the appropriate time comes, you'll be able to bring those threads together and lead them to a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. However we do it, as Christ's people, we are seeking to persuade people of the truths of the gospel that they might be saved. But secondly, we do more than persuade. We plead. We plead with people. That's the language of verse 20. We implore you, be reconciled to Christ. Evangelism, this, this teaching the gospel that, leads to, that aims to persuade is never an academic exercise. Never. It's more than that. There is an urgency to what we're doing. I've told the story before of Pastor George Berder. He lived 500 years ago in England and in the city of Warwick one time he was there to preach to one of the churches and the local magistrates found out he was coming and said, will you come to the jails? Will you come and read the Bible and pray specifically with three men who are being hung for their crimes? Arriving there, he found one man in particular who was a forger who was making counterfeit coins. He read and he prayed with him as the ropes were being put around their necks and they were left standing on ladders. When it came to his moment, the forger made his last speech. And here's what he said. I never killed anyone and I never hurt anybody. I hope the Lord will have mercy upon me. Berger said when he heard this, it struck him to his very soul. Here was a man on the brink of death talking like a Pharisee, putting his trust in his own good works. And it was with great urgency that Berger shouted out, Please, sir, don't trust in your own righteousness. Trust in Christ. And the man had the ladder kicked out from under him and he went into eternity. The last words ringing in his ears. Don't trust in your own righteousness. Look to Christ. Most of us will never stand before someone about to have a needle put in their arm or a switch flipped on an electric chair. But I tell you, there are people like that forger all around us. They're not on the gallows, but they're sitting next to us. They're walking next to us. They're living next to us. 
They have cancer. They have heart disease. Others are on their way to terrible accidents or about to die peacefully in their beds. But as God's ambassadors, we need to see with great urgency there are people who do not know Christ, who are trusting in their own righteousness, and they are about to meet their creator and their judge. We need to tell them about the reconciling work of Christ. Finally, as we do these things, we should serve people distinctly. Serve people distinctly. What does this mean? Look at verses 3 and 4 again. We put, no, chapter 6, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Once again, the gospel may offend, but our aim is not to offend. In fact, it is to go above and beyond to serve God by serving people. Well, what does that mean to commend ourselves? Well, it might, well, it doesn't might. It certainly does not mean that we are like those pastors who plaster their face and name over everything that they do or those that would have coloring pages with their picture on it in the children's department. No, that was what the false teacher, you think I'm joking, but I'm not. Many of the false teachers in Corinth were masters of self-promotion and Paul is saying, look, here's here's my commendation to you. I live a cross-shaped life. What does that mean? It means, number one, I endure suffering. I endure suffering. As servants of God, we commend ourselves, how? By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. When you share Christ, don't you dare tell people their life will get better. Their life will not get better. They will simply be forgiven. They will have a God who loves them and cares for them and will sustain them and help them to endure when life has the wheels fall off. It is a false gospel to tell people, come to Christ and your problems will be solved. Doesn't work that way. Your greatest problem will be solved, which is your debt of sin. But like Paul here, we will have to be prepared to endure suffering. And here's the thing. If we are wimps when it comes to suffering, then our life will not match our message. We will not commend ourselves in the gospel to others. We have to be prepared to endure suffering as well. I don't just mean the little suffering too. I mean the big suffering. Sometimes the big we can take, it's the little things that we become whiny, spoiled brats. Let's just be honest. And, and, and I'm in there. I've been there. I've done that. And, and we have to reframe our thinking to say that this is nothing. This, this is nothing compared to what I have in Christ. Therefore, I can endure. I can endure. Moreover, we not just simply need to endure suffering. We need to live righteously. We need to live righteously. It, it, is, it is not our goal to play fast and loose with morality as individuals or as a church. Like those we saw in Romans 6 last week who thought, well, I can live however I want because God will forgive. His grace will cover it. To all of that mindset, Paul says, no. No, as servants of God, we commend ourselves. How? By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. God's Spirit should produce fruit that looks like the life of a holy, patient, kind, and loving life in genuine love for those who do not deserve it. That's what, that's what our life should look like. That's what should commend the gospel to people. They may hate our morals, they may hate our Savior, but they cannot help but respect us because of the purity of our life and the way that we love even the loveless. Moreover, if we follow Paul's example, we will speak powerfully. We will speak powerfully. We don't need the latest techniques, the best programs, the most modern resources to be successful in evangelism. We do not need to change what the Bible says so we can make it look hipper and cooler and not be so narrow-minded. I I guarantee you that the handwriting is on the wall. It's already taking place. For, for, For years and years and years, pastors across this country have stereotyped those that would struggle with homosexuality or open identify themselves as homosexuals. They have been pegged as the enemy. And now you meet someone who's a homosexual. He's your friend. He's your son, your daughter, your neighbor. And suddenly you say, well, they're not that bad. And what do you do? You go back to the Bible and say, well, this can't be as bad as that guy made it sound. Those pastors have done us a disservice. And it's time that we reorient ourselves to reality. And that is, yes, it is a sin. So is adultery. So is pride. So is gluttony. 
And so we do not look at them as if they are more worse than everyone else. Or, and then when we find out they're not as worse as everyone else, maybe they're better than some Christians we know. We say, well, the Bible must be wrong, and let's be tolerant and erase this part of the Bible. And yet that's what churches are doing over and over again. If, if we had all believed this is God's word, then it is untamperable. We, we cannot alter it even when culture is looking at us and saying you're intolerant, you're selfish, you're arrogant. We say, I don't want to be. It's not my goal. I, 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 will, I will love and serve everyone, but I cannot compromise. I cannot compromise on the areas where God has declared what is right and what is wrong. We speak powerfully, Paul says. As servants of God, we commend ourselves by truthful speech, by the power of God. I love this. With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You know what that means? That means that everything you need for the task of not only living the Christian life, but evangelizing, sharing Christ, God has given to you by his word. Everything that you need. Finally, the distinctive pattern of a gospel-shaped life will be seen when we think victoriously. We think victoriously. Paul says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves. Verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Outwardly, it may look like the world is falling apart and people expect that we will be miserable and complaining. But Paul says again, remember who you are in Christ. It doesn't matter whether people like you or not. It doesn't matter whether people are saying kind things about you or not. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what is going on in your life. If we're honest in an ultimate sense, I know in an immediate sense, our eyes waver, our foot slips, and, and, and we struggle. But in an ultimate sense, because we are in Christ, none of us have had a bad day. None of us. There's no such thing as a bad day. Because we are known by the living God. That is what matters the most. And Paul says, this is where our mind on our best days turns and reorients so that in the course of our life, nothing deters us. Nothing takes us off our game because we know we belong to Him. And the question is simply this, is that's how we think about the, the life of evangelism. The reality is if we are seeking a truly Christ-centered, cross-shaped, gospel-driven life, then it will naturally lead to an evangelistic life. It will, life. it will naturally lead to us talking about Jesus. And let's just be honest. You will, I will, we all will inevitably say something stupid. We will pull an apostle Peter and open our mouth and put our foot in. And, and, and we'll, we'll feel silly and we'll be embarrassed. That doesn't mean that we just say, well, I shouldn't do anything because I'm going to mess up. We will all mess up. But remember, in a real sense, you're not gonna, they're no worse off talking to you. They're already going to hell. You, you, you can't, can't do anything worse to them, okay? Open your mouth, speak of the glory of Christ, and God will work. One, one of the most amazing things I heard um, while I was there was about another pastor who was visiting India and talking with a believer, and he was very surprised to find and I'm not going to tell you the name. I'll tell you later we're not recording. But because for the same reasons that this guy wouldn't say the name, he didn't want it to change. But he found it very odd that this good evangelical believer was recording, or was, excuse me, not recording, but was transcribing into the native language sermons that a certain woman, well-known woman here in America, was preaching because they're terrible. And, and, he, and he, the, the pastor kind of got a look, and the Indian guy said, oh, don't worry, don't worry. When she preaches in my language, she sounds very orthodox. He was changing the translation to make her sound better than what she was. But why, why do I share that? God, God has his means. God has his ways. And there are times when you feel like you have failed miserably and he will still use you to bring people into the kingdom. Do not let fear of failure stop you from opening your mouth and saying something that will help point people to the great reconciling work of God through Christ. In his book on evangelism, Max Stiles describes the kind of evangelistic church he longs to see. Here's what he says. I long for a church that understands that it, the local church, is the chosen and best method of evangelism. 
I long for a church where the Christians are so in love with Jesus that when they go about their regular time of worship, they become an image of the gospel. I long for a church that disarms with love, not entertainment, and lives out countercultural confidence in the power of the gospel. I long for a church where the greatest celebrations happen over those who share their faith and the heroes are those who risk their reputations to evangelize. I yearn for a culture of evangelism where brothers and sisters whose backs are up to mine in the battle, where I'm taught and I teach about what it means to share our faith and where I see leaders in the church leading people to Jesus. I want a church where you can point to changed lives, where you can see people stand up and say, when I came to this church two years ago, I didn't know God, but now I do. I long to be part of a culture of evangelism like that. I bet you do too. I do. And I pray that that's the kind of church that God will shape us into by His Word and by His Spirit. Let's pray for that now. Father, it's so easy to be gripped by one of two things when we talk about evangelism, either fear or guilt. And Father, I pray that neither of those things will take hold in our life. Fear, as we've just said, God, because you are at work even through those that make mistakes. You draw straight lines with crooked sticks. But God, free us from guilt as well because, Father, we, we are not justified by our evangelism. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. And so therefore, Father, help us not to feel weighed down and pressed in with guilt because we don't evangelize. God, help us not to be motivated by guilt as we saw before, by, by fear of Christ and wanting to honor Him with our lives and by the love of Christ that controls us as we not only feel the weight of His love for us, but desire to love others as well that they might share in it. Father, help us to be clear on the gospel message. Help us not to be vague or foggy in what You have done through Jesus. Father, it is the most precious message in the world. May we know it. May we understand it, may we delight in it and be able to share it with others. And Father, as we think about how we share Christ, help us not to just look to, to some other person, to some other group, not even to this, this church as a whole, but God, help us to think about ourselves as faithful ambassadors, partners with you in bringing people into a reconciled relationship through Christ. God, may we live in such a way that we, we do not we do not have lives that can be mistaken for those in the world, but Lord, lives that clearly reflect the life of your Son. Father, I pray especially for fathers this morning that as they look to the children you have given to them, that they will see a unique and pressing responsibility to look to those children and to lead them to faith in Christ, following after themselves, their own life, their own faith in Christ. Father, in all this, we pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would be gracious to us, and that you would create us to be, make us to be a church that is known for joyfully, sacrificially sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.